0: Welcome to Behind the Knife's AppSite Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated AppSite Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, behindthenife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Now, dominate the day, and dominate the site. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligasure Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the Tac motorized fixation device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Decision curved jaw cordless ultrasonic device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Okay, behind the knife abseite review. Today we're talking about urology. We're gonna go over some high yield urology that's gonna get you those points on the abse. So here with John. So John, let's go into some urologic anatomy. One thing that's frequently tested is the structures in the renal hilum. So anterior to posterior, what are we gonna encounter in that
1: renal hilum? So yeah, anterior to posterior, I remember VAP. So renal
0: vein, most anterior renal artery and renal pelvis yeah exactly so be familiar with those structures look at some pictures because that's often a question is just the relationship of the structures of the renal hilo so anterior posterior vein artery pelvis now with regard to the renal vein John so does the left renal vein does it pass anterior or posterior to the aorta the left renal vein crosses anterior to the aorta. Yeah. So left renal vein crosses anterior to the aorta. And you can remember that when you're just think about your approach for a uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm and that proximal, proximal dissection, you're going to encounter that left renal vein. and You need to watch for that. So the left renal vein, what's important as far as like the collateralization? So the left renal vein has some other things that's drained into it as collateral. So how is that clinically significant, John? Yeah, in trauma and in vascular situations, the left renal vein can be ligated from the IVC due to those collaterals. Great. Perfect. Okay. Now, let's talk about the renal artery then. So, if the left renal vein crosses anterior to the aorta, what's the relationship of the re- right renal artery and the IVC? The right renal artery typically passes posterior to the IVC. Okay. So, your right renal artery, posterior to the IVC, your left renal vein, anterior to the aorta. Great. Okay, let's move on to the ureters. So they're fixed at a couple locations. Where are the fixation points of the ureters? So they're fixed at the ureter pelvic junction, the urovesicular junction, and the pelvic brim. Okay, and and what is the relationship of the ureters to the uh, iliac vessels? The ureters cross over or anterior to the iliac vessels and under the uterine artery, so water under the bridge. Okay, great. So what about the spermatic cord? We, we covered this in hernia, but let's go over it again. So what are uh, the spermatic cord structures? Yeah, a spermatic cord consists of the
1: testicular artery, the pampiniform plexus, the vas deferens, the cremasteric
0: muscles, the ilio nerve, and the genital branch of the general femoral nerve. Okay, great. Now let, let's move on to some urologic pathology. So uh, one thing we see very commonly in the surgery world is urinary retention. So acute urinary retention. But the etiology is gender specific. So what causes urinary retention most commonly in, in men? And how's how that different from women? Yeah. In men, the most
1: common cause is enlarged prostates. In females, the it's caused
0: by pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic mass, or urethral diverticula. Yes. Yeah, so much more common in men. Like, again, do that prostate, especially older gentlemen, you know other ideologies you have you can have urethral strictures you know, trauma neurogenic bladders you can have uh, blood clots within the bladder and the urethra infection some medications can induce a urinary retention as well as constipation but what are some risk factors then for acute urinary retention so
1: being male being of older age history of bph or prior urinary retention pelvic or perineal surgery Spinal surgery or any of your inguinal procedures such as your inguinal hernia repair.
0: Yeah, so our typical you know, first-line treatment for this is decompression of the bladder, usually transurethral with a, just a basic Foley catheter. But what if that's, John, what if that's unsuccessful? What are our other interventions for acute urinary retention? Yeah, I'd say you want to try Foley placement multiple times
1: before you move on. And also usually consult a urologist. But additional options, specifically in people with pelvic trauma causing urethral disruption, or if they have a complex urinary tract reconstruction, such as a bladder is not accessible through the urethra, you can consider a suprapubic catheter, also known as a cystostomy.
0: Yeah, I and mean, a lot of times, like you say, you know, urology is going to be able to help with this, and they can form cystoscopy in order to get a, a catheter transurethral into the bladder. And, and of course, you want to address those underlying, you know, if they're on medications or any other underlying etiology that's leading to the and hearing retention. But yeah, uh, you may uh, need a suprapubic catheter replacement if all, if other things fail. So let's say we have a suprapubic catheter, what are some principles to management of that suprapubic catheter? So one of the major
1: side effects of that catheter bladder spasms, and these can be treated with anticholinergics. The tract between the bladder and the abdominal wall takes about four to six weeks to fully mature and be established. If you have chronic indwelling catheters, these need to be changed every four to six weeks, and the urine will be always be colonized. It's communicating with the outside, so you only treat with the UTI if
0: you have symptoms, and they do, unfortunately, do get a lot of UTIs. Okay, let's move on to something a little bit more high yield, and that's the types of kidney stones. So what are some different uh, types of kidney stones?
1: Yeah, so we have the most common type, 75% of all kidney stones, is calcium oxalate. These are radiopaque on imaging, and it's increased risk in patients with terminal ileum resection or Crohn's disease due to the increased oxalate absorption in the colon. Next, we have struvite stones. These are also radiopaque, and these form the stag corn calculi that you might see in questions. These are associated with urease-producing infections such as Proteus. The next type is uric acid stones. These are radiolucent on imaging. You have increased occurrence in patients with ileostomies, gout, and myeloperiferative disorders. And finally, you have cysteine stones, once again, are radiolucent. And you have increased risk with congenital disorders of the cysteine reabsorption.
0: Yeah, so the way you'll see that show up is sometimes the last, what's the most common type? And that's, again, like you say, calcium oxalate. Or they may give you a specific patient, like a Crohn's patient, and say, what kind of kidney stones is this patient prone to? And again, that's calcium oxalate. A big one is that ileostomy. So patients with ileostomies are increased uric acid stones. Or they may show you a picture. If they show you a picture of that staghorn uh, calculi, that staghorn calculi, then know that that's the struvite stone. So that's the way that that will typically show up. So be familiar with those. So, John, what are some indications for surgical intervention while managing kidney stones? I think the most common scenario you're going
1: to see on the test is a patient who has an acute infection or infected stone. But other indications are intractable pain, multiple ongoing chronic infections, progressive obstruction or renal damage, so you'd think of like hydronephrosis related to a stone, Stones that are quite large, greater than six millimeters, and these aren't likely to spontaneously pass. And then obviously, a patient with a solitary kidney, where you're worried about damage to that kidney, you'd want to take care of this earlier than later. So what are our surgical intervention options? So the most, most common acute surgical intervention would be ureoscopy with stone extraction, and then usually a stent placement placed to pass the obstruction or to decompress the kidney. Other things that you can also consider are percutaneous nephrostomy tubes, an open nephrolithotomy, and more of a non-urgent setting, you can consider extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy. The contraindications to this, and I don't think this would probably come up on the site, are pregnancy patients who bleed easy or have hematologic disorders
0: or stones that are multiple centimeters in size. Okay, good. Okay, so let's move on from stones, and let's talk about some, some additional urologic pathologies. So let's start with a patient who has an enlarged scrotum and, and we can distinguish this in between painless and painful enlarged scrotum so a patient presents with a painless eh, enlarged scrotum what's under differential diagnosis
1: yeah and this is you know clinically you should better list these out as well so hydrocele spermatocele or epididymal cyst varicocele which is that the well-known bag of worms uh, inguinal hernia obviously should be on there for any general surgeon and always want to consider testicular tumors.
0: Now talk to me about that varicocele. Yeah, that's great. You know, as us, as, as general surgeons, when we see these patients, typically top of our differential is that inguinal hernia, but certainly we have to be aware of these other things. That varicocele you are talking about, the bag of worms, it, it, sometimes if they present on the left, sometimes they present on the right, and that can clue us into potential underlying pathology or etiologies. So what's the difference between the left and the right? On
1: the left side, the left gonadal vein drains into the left renal vein, and that's why you typically find varicoceles on the left side. On the right side, the right gonadal vein drains directly into the IVC. However, if you have isolated right-sided varicoceles, they're concerning for a retroperitoneal process.
0: Okay, great. So let's move on to that painful enlarged scrotum. So the painful scrolling swelling, it should be evaluated immediately as it's an emergent condition. So what's on your differential for a painful enlarged scrotum? Yeah, so if you truly had a painful
1: enlarged scrotum, the, the things that would be in the highest differential would be testicular rupture, testicular torsion, and a potentially incarcerating inguinal hernia. Other things you may consider, and definitely a cause of this, is fornia gangrenes or an NSTI. Trauma to the, the scrotum can also do this. You can also have referred pain from some type of urinal calculus, And obviously, cancer can also do this. Okay, great. So let's talk a little bit more about hydroseal. very common. So what is a hydrocele? So it's swelling in the scrotum caused by an imbalance of secreted and absorbed fluid.
0: Okay, so yeah, this can form in response to adjacent inflammation and it reports between the parietal and visceral layers of the tunica vaginalis. There's two types, that's right. So there's communicating and non-communicating. So what's a communicating seal? So that's characterized
1: by fluctuation in size versus non-communicating, which does not fluctuate in size.
0: So yeah, like communicating, that's characterized, like you say, by the fluctuating size. The reason for that is because its etiology is due to an underlying patent processes vaginalis, and it's typically seen in, in pediatric patients. So in addition to an enlarged scrotum, John, what other findings are typically associated with a hydrocele?
1: These are usually unilateral. They typically have a gradual onset. They're painless. And if you do the flashlight test, these will trans
0: So, John, on physical exam, how do you differentiate between a spermatocel and a hydrocele? Yeah, if the testes cannot be palpated due to the fluid,
1: it is a hydrocele. If both the testes and fluid collection can be felt, it
0: is a spermatocel. Okay, good to know. I doubt that's going to show up on the test, but good to know. But let's talk more about operative management of hydroceles. So, how do you approach these?
1: So, there's two approaches, inguinal or scrotal. Inguinal is indicated in pediatric patients with a communicating hydrocele or when there's a concern from malignancy. Scrotal, you pro- approach these to the media raphé or a transverse hemolateral incision. And this is used for repair of most adult hydroceles. Okay, great. Okay. And what are your types of repair? So the two types of repairs are the Jabile bottleneck repair and the Lord plication repair.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's important to know the distinction between those different types of repairs. You're definitely not going to be asked that. But, you know, in general, especially for adults, non-communicating hydroseals, you, you know, you're know, going to open the hydroseal, drain the fluid, excise the excess stack, and then, you know, you can plicate or you can invert that hydroseal edges to prevent re- recurrence. But uh, again, for the upside, you don't really need to know that. But what you may need to know is some potential post-operative complications. So, John, what are some potential post-operative complications after a surgery for a hydroseal?
1: Yeah, the most common are squirtal hematoma and obviously hydrocele recurrence. Uh, Spermia can also occur with damage to the epididymis or vas deferens, but this is more
0: common with excision of a spermatosele. Okay, great. So let's move on to some malignancies, so some high-yield uh, urologic malignancies that you may need to know. So the first one would be testicular neoplasm. So these have age group distribution. So what are the, you know, the peaks in age groups that you're at risk for a testicular neoplasm?
1: So there's three age groups, infants, men in their 20s to 30s, and then those in their 60s.
0: Yeah. Interestingly, like for men aged 25 to 35, this is the number one cause of a cancer-related mortality is a testicular neoplasm. So pretty common. So how, how do you work these out? Uh, so the imaging is the
1: first thing you want to do. And that's typically a scrotal ultrasound. And then you need uh, CT
0: staging. So your chest, abdomen, and pelvis to look for any metastatic disease. Yeah. Yeah. Don't no, never forget the staging. So, scrotal ultrasound is, there, is the first thing you kind of go to and then followed by your CT chest, abdomen, pelvis. There are, there are some biomarkers that I understand that are associated with some of these testicular neoplasms.
1: Yeah. Your beta ACG, your AFP and your LDH mm. are the three you need to know for this. Perfect. Okay. So let, let's talk about some different types. So what's the most common type? of is the most common type. It's the number one testicular tumor. Biomarkers for this, you don't have any elevation, and specifically
0: AFP is not elevated if you see that on a test. Okay, yeah, great. So a lot of the questions on the test are going to be distinguishing between seminoma and non-seminoma. So just remember that seminoma is the number one, and it does not have AFP elevation. Now, what is treatment for a seminoma?
1: So this the treatment for a seminoma is orchiectomy and retroperitoneal Radiation for all stages. There are some caveats to this, but the most likely answer you're going to see on a test is the orchiectomy and the radiation.
0: Yeah, so these are very sensitive to XRT. So almost all of them, if not all of them, will be getting XRT. Of course, you know, the treatment is individualized to the patient. What about chemotherapy? Chemotherapy is reserved for bulky
1: retroperitoneal or metastatic disease. That's usually followed by a surgical resection. Uh, the
0: resords after a course of chemo. Okay. Again, so just in briefly seminoma number one, no AFP elevation treatments, orchiectomy and retroperitoneal XRT, as it is very sensitive to XRT. And then chemotherapy for bulky retroperitoneal or metastatic disease. Yeah.
1: And the drugs we use for chemotherapy
0: for seminomas are cisplatin bleomycin, and atoposide. Okay, perfect. Great. So let's move on to non-seminoma. So embryonal, teratoma, choriocarcinoma, and yolk sac tumors. These are all non-seminomas. What are the biomarkers that we see in non-seminoma testicular cancer? So you can have
1: increased AFP for most of these, and you would see increased beta-HCG
0: in choriocarcinoma and teratoma. Okay. So this is where you start seeing the elevation of body markers again in non-seminoma. It's a seminoma. There's no AFP elevation. Okay. Treatment for non-seminoma? So like I said, the ge- the general treatment is
1: orchiectomy and retroperitoneal lymph node dissection for all stages.
0: Okay. So stage two plus, that's you know when they, it's gone beyond the testes, receive chemotherapy. And again, that's cisplatin, bleomycin, and toposide prior to resection, but yes, orchiectomy, retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. These have a tendency to spread via lymphatics, except for choriocarcinoma subtype, which has a homogenous spread, so especially to the lungs. So remember that, lymphatic spread except for chorio, which has hemogenous homogenous spread uh, to the lungs. So in resection, we say orchiectomy for these tumors. what type of, is this a scrotal incision or what type of incision are you using?
1: Yeah, we approach these through an inguinal incision to avoid disrupting any lymphatics. Okay, perfect. Okay, so let's move on to prostate cancer now. So what are some risk factors for prostate cancer? So this is age greater than 40 years old, African American race, first degree relative diagnosed before the age of 65, and the BRCA mutation. Yeah, sometimes we forget about that BRCA association with prostate cancer. Okay, so how do we screen patients? So screening is controversial, and they seem to be always changing it. The test we use for screening is a prostate-specific antigen, or a PSA. And we want to refer patients to urology if that PSA is greater than 7. We typically start as screening patients between the age of 40 and 45 in high-risk individuals. So that's African-American men and men with family history of prostate cancer. But of average-risk patients, we start screening them at 50 years old. I don't think
0: you can get tested that on the app site, but just so you know. Yeah. And As you say, it it's changes year by year. So those are in general, and they're not going to ask you that specific of a question on the on the app site. So what's the workup then? So if you add a
1: PSA greater than 7 in center urology and you need to further work these patients up, the most common is a transrectal ultrasound guided biopsy. We then will also work these patients up with further imaging to include a CT, chest, abdomen, pelvis, Plus or minus a bone scan if if prostate cancer is diagnosed. And once again, biochemical markers, we can follow the PSA. Uh, We can also follow follow Alkafos, especially if you have bony mets.
0: Okay, so let's move on to treatment then. So let's say, uh, you know, early stage, you know, like stage 1A, incidental finding during a TURP. What do you do in that situation? So there's nothing further you need to do during that. Okay, all right. How about intracapsular tumors
1: without metastasis? So you can consider radiation or perform a radical prostatectomy, which is resection of the prostate, seminal vesicles, and ampulla of the vas deferens. And you can also consider a pelvic lymph node dissection or nothing, which is really kind of strange.
0: Yeah. I mean, the age of health. Yeah, I, you know, I think the reason for that is these tend to be indolent and slow growing. So if you're an older individual, it's likely that something else is going to get you before this uh, prostate cancer. So that is an option. But in general treatment, XRT or radical prostatectomy, depending on uh, the individual patient. Okay, so what about extracapsular or there's metastatic disease? So in this case, you want to do
1: radiation and ablation. So ablation is luprolide. That's a GNRH agonist you also want to do flutamide which is a testosterone
0: receptor blocker or would perform bilateral orchiectomies yeah so some form of androgen ablation and flutamide bilateral orchiectomy most likely is going to be one of those medical options but so when should you recheck a psa be rechecked after a prostatectomy three weeks if it's the psa should go to zero
1: If it does not, we want to check a bone scan to look for metastases.
0: Okay, great. Okay, moving on. So let's talk about bladder cancer. So what are red flag symptoms that should prompt an evaluation for bladder cancer?
1: Yeah, this is where you'd see on the test, painless hematuria.
0: Okay, and what are risk factors for
1: bladder cancer? So smoking, prior history of use of cyclophosphamide, aniline dyes, and occupational toxins such as arsenic, and also any radiation to the pelvis. Okay, and workup? Yeah, the first workup is a cystoscopy. Okay, so how do we treat bladder cancer? So T1 tumors, where there's no muscle involvement, you can do intravesical uh, BCG or transurethral resection. T2 tumors, where there is a muscle involvement, uh, you must do a cystectomy with the ileal conduit. uh, You also don't want to do chemotherapy and radiation. Great. So T1 disease,
0: intravesical BCG, I've seen that show up before. T2, cystectomy with ileal conduit, chemo, and XRT. So the chemotherapy regimen is methotrexate, benblastine, adriamycin, and cisplatin. Unlikely you need to know that for bladder cancer, but uh, just so you're aware. And then, of course, for metastatic disease, a definitive chemotherapy. Okay, moving on. How about renal cell cancer? What are some red flag symptoms for renal cell cancer? So you, fight, you have a patient who had flank pain and hematuria. Okay,
1: and what's your workup? You do a CT urogram, plus or minus a cystoscopy. Okay, and treatment. A treatment for this is radical nephrectomy. What do you mean when you say radical nephrectomy? So that is removing the kidney, the fat surrounding
0: the kidney, girotis fascia, and all the regional nodes. Yeah, and possibly the adrenal gland if, the, if, if it's involved by the tumor or if it's immediately adjacent to it. So a third of these patients will have metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis, often isolated lung or colon metastasis that can be resected a, as part of your R0 resection. So what about, we hear sometimes about perineoplastic syndromes associated due to renal cell cancer. What are those? Yeah, there's a few of these. So you can have
1: perineoplastic syndromes with renin, erythropoietin, which you get erythrocytosis, remember the PTH-related protein, which can cause hypercalcemia, uh,
0: ACTH, and insulin. Okay, great. Okay, so let's uh, finish it out with some quick hits. Okay, so John. What is the most common cause of acute renal insufficiency after surgery? So hypotension. Great. Okay. What childhood condition leads to an increased risk of testicular
1: cancer? So undescended testicles, and I would most likely result in a seminoma. Excellent. Okay. Okay. Sudden onset of severe testicular pain in a teenage boy. What are you concerned about? You have to be concerned about testicular torsion. And how does that present? Present with high-riding testes that is tender and swollen, and you would have absent cremasteric reflex on that side. Perfect. Okay. And what do we do for these? So you
0: do emergent detorsion and bilateral orchiopexy. Yeah, that's important. Don't forget that bilateral orchiopexy with that emergent detorsion for testicular torsion. That's very commonly tested. But the testicle is not viable. Of course, you need to resect and and then uh, perform an orchiopexy of the contralateral testes. But bilateral orchiopexy. How do you distinguish uh, torsion from acute epididymitis? So these patients with
1: acute epididymitis will present with fever, pyuria, and a tender cord. Uh, you can use ultrasound; would be the best to determine the difference between the two.
0: Yeah, ultrasound is very useful in being able to establish uh, or, or the flow to that testicle. So. How about testicular rupture? How does that appear on ultrasound? So you have heterogeneous echo patterns of the testes
1: and disruption of the tunica albuginea.
0: Okay, okay, perfect. What's the most common tumor of the kidney? Uh, it's metastases from breast cancer, actually. Yeah, that's really interesting. Metastases from breast cancer is the most common tumor of the kidney. How about where is it most likely for renal cell cancer? Where does that normally metastasize to? These
1: usually go to the lung, and uh, like we said before, renal cell cancer is often found late,
0: so you'd find, a lot of people find lung mets prior to finding the renal cell. Okay, and, and like we mentioned before, the, the, those isolated mets can be resected as part of a bar zero resection. What's the syndrome associated with multifocal and recurrent renal cell cancer in addition to renal cyst, CNS tumors, and pheochromocytomas? That's your von Hippel-Lindau syndrome. Okay, von Hippel-Lindau. So renal cell cancers, renal cysts, CNS tumors, pheochromocytoma. Okay, so with regard to prostate cancer, what's the most common site within the prostate? It's the posterior lobe of the prostate. Okay, posterior lobe. Okay, most common site for metastasis of prostate cancer. That would be the bone. Great. So let's yeah. say you have a patient who underwent a TERP and, and now has altered mental status or seizures. What is the concern there?
1: That's your post-TURP syndrome. It's caused by hyponatremia secondary to irrigation with water during the procedure. And how do you treat it? Just treat it with sodium correction and
0: with diuresis. Okay, perfect. Okay, so that's it for our urology section. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 app site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the ab site.